that returning to Paradise Valley is, uh, has really brought to light for me are all of the, I'm, I call them local impact entrepreneurs, though they wouldn't okay. call themselves that. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. A couple weeks back, I got the chance to meet Lara Burks. Lara is a sustainability rock star, and she's also a University of Montana alumna. She visited campus to share her experiences working on sustainability on multiple dimensions. Lara started her journey in the policy space, working at a high level in organizations like the World Trade Center and the World Economic Forum. She then served as vice president and chief sustainability officer at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Since leaving HPE, she's returned to Montana and now lives in the Paradise Valley. She's involved with a fascinating new startup called Ecogo, and we talk all about that today, including their efforts to develop a sustainability score for consumer products. In addition, Lara works with local entrepreneurs on nature-based solutions to persistent environmental challenges. I learned a ton speaking to Lara, and I'm sure that you will too. So here we go, Lara Burks, right now. Okay, so we're here today with Lara Burks. Lara, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. So you're here to sort of educate us, our community, on sustainability. You're a sustainability expert at many levels, and uh, now living in the Paradise Valley, how was the drive over today? It was great. It was a little bit of everything, as is the case in October in Montana. It started out with snow. And yeah, did you guys get snow last weekend? We did. Not yeah. much. Not like Eastern. Not like Browning. No, Jeez. exactly. <laughs> 52 inches up there. Did you see that? I was really feeling for East Glacier. Yeah. No, nothing, nothing of that magnitude. Okay, so the drive over was was smooth, uneventful, and beautiful. And paradise is just—it's so stunning. I traveled to Yellowstone a few times each winter. Um, got some ski buddies down out of Cook City, and so going through the Paradise Valley is always just—it's so stunning. It is. I I feel lucky every day I get to wake up there. And and, and you were saying it's it's like the most intact ecosystems mm-hmm. south of. Next to the Serengeti, or what's what's the distinction? Exactly. No, I've recently learned this since coming back, and it's so easy to take for granted until we begin to look at this corridor that goes into Yellowstone. And the statistic is that the Paradise Valley area is the last intact ecosystem, second only to the Serengeti. Wow. And what does intact even mean? Uh, well, it means we still have a chance of preserving it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it hasn't been ruined yet? Exactly. Okay. In, in its simplest of terms. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you graduated from University of Montana 15 or so years ago, right? And you've been working in sustainability at a variety of levels. I want to talk all about that. But before we get into that, what was your kind of, what was the genesis of your interest in this area? Why did, why did you get passionate about sustainability? Sure. Well, I didn't start out that way. So I studied um, business at mm-hmm. the University of Montana and then uh, went to work for Senator Baucus, who was right. the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee at the time. And that was a series of, uh, uh, well, luck being better than planning, we'll put it that yeah. way. And so I started out as an intern. How did you connect with Max? Pure serendipity. Yeah. I had an aunt and uncle living in Washington, D.C. at the time. I graduated from the university here and had very clear ideas of what I wanted to do. But, you know, as is often the case, that doesn't necessarily happen. And I thought I wanted to work in a big consulting firm and moved out to Washington, took resumes around to all of the big accounting firms, consulting firms. And someone said to me, you know who your senior senator from Montana is, right? And 
I didn't. And I didn't know anything about politics mm-hmm. at the time. And very kindly, they introduced me to their office and they offered me an internship. It was an unpaid internship. Wow. And this was 10 days before September 11th. Oh, my gosh. So wow. the first 10 days, uh, or probably the last 10 days that were, quote unquote, normal yeah. on Capitol Hill. Yeah. And because of that unrest, to put it mildly, and then the subsequent anthrax attacks, which happened a month later. Oh, yes, I remember that. Well, that was such a bizarre time. It was a very bizarre time. And as a result, the internship program kind of dissolved, was put on hold for most of the students that were still in school. But because I had graduated, they offered me a job. Okay. And um, and so I stayed on in Max's office uh, for for about a year and then moved over to the committee staff working on finance committee issues and specifically trade policy. And that's what, this is a long answer to your question, but yeah. it was that uh, inroad to trade policy that ultimately led to sustainability in a very circuitous way. And uh, when I left D.C., I moved to Morocco, actually, and did research there for about a year and a half looking at the impact of the U.S.-Morocco free trade agreement and its effects on a developing economy. It was one of the free trade agreements that we had worked on when Max was chair of the Finance Committee. And that began you know, a lot of interest in development economics and trade and you know the, the U.S. versus the rest of, of the world. And it was sure. actually... Later, when I, um, after I graduated uh, with my master's and moved to, to Switzerland, that I began to see more and more trade texts that were incorporating environmental considerations. And so this is getting to the answer to your question, which was ultimately a realization that that's really where my passion lied. I've always been a climber, mm-hmm. um, backcountry skiing, all of these things. So I had just in my mind compartmentalized that as something that was a personal passion. This other thing you did outside of work. Right, but know. but it had not occurred to me that there would be a, a natural way for those sure. two to combine. And I'd been in Switzerland for a number of years at that point, and there were more and more uh, opportunities, I would say, to, to begin to figure out how one interacts with that field. And it took a few years to transition, but ultimately I concluded that that's where my true interest and passions uh, resided, and there was probably a way to draw upon the public policy experience, the international organization engagement, and then uh, increasingly the private sector, and how do we meld all of those things to effectuate change in the realm of sustainability. Okay, and so at what point did you, because at one point you left the public, or the policy sector, mm-hmm. whether it's you know domestically or internationally, you were working mm-hmm. internationally, um, and, and you went to Hewlett Packard. Exactly. You know is this kind of that transition zone? That was that was one of them. Uh, so I'd been working in. So when people think sustainability, Hewlett, Hewlett Packard is in the first brand that kind of comes to mind. True. Exactly. Uh, and there are so many ways that this can be applied, right? From sure. the policy frameworks and dealing with the UNFCCC and um, all of these global climate uh, frameworks to how companies interact with that, how governments interact with that, how nonprofits interact with that, and because I'd been working a lot with companies, but from the international organization perspective, I increasingly felt that to be credible, I needed to understand what it was like to actually go inside a company and figure out how you do change those things. Because it's really hard. And so while I was working with all those individuals uh, across different sectors and different industries to do that, I had never had to do that myself. I didn't know what it meant to have to persuade a board to reduce their carbon emissions or to adopt better energy efficiency policies. Think about shareholders. 
Think about shareholders. Yeah. All of those really um, tangible realities that I wasn't faced with. We were coming up with proposals, and and all of that has a role in a place. But I increasingly thought that it it was important to have that experience, which is when the opportunity with Hewlett Packard Enterprise came about, and that's when I came back to the U.S. So I was abroad for about ten years, and this was at the time that Hewlett Packard had just split, actually. So Hewlett Packard, as we know it. Um, printers and uh, PCs and yep. so forth, split from the enterprise business, and I joined the enterprise side. Okay. What's the enterprise side? Services mostly. So if you think about how do you make servers more efficient, mm. that would be one example. Okay. And so that it's a, it's a very different B2B application of sure. sustainability as opposed to Hewlett Packard um, as a hardware company because you touch these things and it's very tangible. And that has different advantages and challenges when it's a little bit more behind the scene as opposed to something that's consumer-facing. But the big gain for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise at the time was looking at how do we really make servers more efficient because the, the actual usage of that is where the big part of the footprint of the company comes in. And can we make that scope two emission more efficient so that uh, the energy generation is diminished. That, yeah, so when we're talking source. about efficiency, we're talking about energy consumption in this case, servers? In this okay. case, yes. And so, yeah, sort of sticking with the TikTok here, what, so was your entry point to HP in a, in a sustainability role? Yes. Okay. It was. Okay. It was. And, I mean, that seems like – that's an interesting kind of question – um, at that point, you'd accumulated such a wealth of experience that going in in a sustainability role seemed feasible. But it's interesting, our students often get passionate about sustainability or some other topic. They're like, I want to work in that. But it's hard to sort of go do that in your first job, mm-hmm. depending on where you land. But you know, it's like, not like junior sustainability analyst is, is you know, a job posting we see coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, what's kind of been your experience to that, or what's what would be your advice to to young students kind of interested in maybe getting into this type of work? I think it's changing, and I think mm-hmm. there are more and more of those jobs. So I really encourage uh, students and uh, interested professionals to really pursue that because there are more and more of those jobs now, and they come under a lot of different titles. But I do see more and more of these roles, particularly okay. in in companies that are starting out now, even if we're looking at companies that are pre-IPO, because they see how important this is. It's not it's becoming a license to operate. It's it is not something that is nice to have, which you could argue was at one point. And yeah. the rigor that that society is holding companies accountable to now requires this investment. Sure. And so I think it's a great time for students to be looking at this as a field. Fantastic. So, yeah, this reminds me of a, you know experience from when I was an MBA student at Washington, you know, is in a, a student group called Net Impact. I don't know if you're familiar with Net Impact, but they try to promote sustainability curriculum on college campuses. And um, we had uh, a fellow from Starbucks visit. Um, he was the chief sustainability officer and it kind of framed this debate of or he he challenged us he said should my job exist it was an interesting question mm-hmm. you know in some ways like putting a c level executive in charge of sustainability is, is a statement of commitment but the counter argument to that was no it should be weave throughout the fabric like every everybody should be a sustainability officer 
I agree. In fact, I, I often joke that we'll know we've succeeded when I no longer have a job. Yeah, yeah. There, there are, I feel like the best jobs in the world are kind of like that. <laughs> a, built in, a built in obsolescence. That would, that would be a good example of that. Yeah, yeah, nice. Unlike what we see now. But I agree. And so, you know, companies like Patagonia, which is obviously a, an easy one because there's such a sure. um, progressive business in so many ways, but that dedicated environmental function doesn't have to exist, let's say, because it's so ingrained. I know that there are individuals that are certainly focused on that component, but I think it is an example of a company that has this. That's uh, in the DNA. For it sure. is in their DNA. Oh. And so that will be the ultimate mark of of success i think in sustainability when when there are no longer these vertically integrated functions and it is holistic across yeah. a business speaking of that what was what was your experience with that kind of culturally at at hp they still have a you know a pretty vertically integrated yeah. function yeah, as yeah. do most large multinationals so yeah, that is that is certainly the governance structure in place now but I do think a lot of these companies that we're now seeing pre-IPO and, and maybe just, you know, angel list companies that are coming out, they have a much broader depth. So I'll take Allbirds, for example. Okay. I, they do have sustainability functions. Yep. But if you look at their founders, they founded this on the premise of a sustainable sustainable materials and a sustainable model, carbon neutral, actually. So I, I hold them up as a really good example sure. because to listen to the founders, you know that this was the goal from the beginning. Right, part of the value proposition and the business model. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. So at some point you decide that it was time to leave HP and kind of, kind of go back to a little bit more of a local kind of perspective or small, mm-hmm. I don't want to say smaller scale because that, that, that intimates that there's, there's a difference in impact and I don't think that's necessarily accurate. But let's talk about that. So mm-hmm. now you're in this consulting role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what are you up to right now? So when I left HP, I had, um, uh, just before that, I had bought a place in Paradise Valley. Right. And when I came back to the States, I decided that it was time to have a roof over my head somewhere in the world that didn't move as often as I did. <laughs> and uh, I didn't always know where my job would be, but I knew where I would always be happy to go back to. Okay. And that was Paradise Valley. And so when I left HPE, we moved into the barn. There was an old house that needed renovating. We moved into the barn and renovated the house for about nine months. Wow. And I took a step back and kind of tried to think about w- where all of these experiences would, would reside. And um, and it's an it's a it's a good experience to step back for a little while and and let those things fall where they may and uh, and now I'm spinning a lot of plates like I think anyone that that gets to live in Montana does uh-huh. and so that ranges from consulting work which is really interesting because it it's a little bit like the HPE role but across a lot of different companies and sectors. And um, and then also I'm working with a startup, which I think is a rite of passage with anyone that spends time in the Bay Area. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's been exciting too. Ecogo is the company, and founders started it a couple of years ago. We've been looking at how you make the constitution of products more transparent to consumers so they understand their social and environmental impact. And so like a scoring system. Yes. For, yes. for household products, for consumer, any kind of consumer product. The ultimate wow. vision is, is that, yes. Like and kind of a nutrition label 
for yes. every product on the shelf or, I, or, or whatever, the virtual shelf too? That That is the vision. Wow. Getting there is, is not like a really hard problem is, to solve. It is, it is. It is because there's so much in the news about how consumers would love to be able to buy more conscientiously. Yeah. But it's really hard. It's hard. I think about this all the time, and I'm probably to a fault. It's it's horrible shopping with me because all I can think about are supply chains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the average consumer shouldn't have to think about those things. You should just know that uh, if you buy something, it's you know hopefully not completely detrimental. But these are the things that we're trying to shed some light on, and how we do that is, is, is still... Um, evolving. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I mean, I think as you're laying that out there, I think, okay, the simple analogy of a nutrition label is adequate, but even a nutrition label is can be kind of confusing. I mean, yeah, it tells you calories and carbohydrates and proteins and fats. and But you still have to know a lot about it to know if those are good or bad things. Yeah, and, and what kind of fat is that? And where's the sugar coming from? And all these other things. So mm-hmm. What you're proposing is not as simple as a nutrition label. No, and in fact, the though it should be right, and it's I would think yeah, but yeah. So maybe let's talk about like what's the gold standard, and like how do you even Mm -hmm. conceptualize getting there? We've we're thinking about about this in three categories: the social, environmental, and quality. So in the context of quality, you can look at a warranty and understand that as a proxy for durability. So if something has a limited warranty. You can assume, probably, depending on the product, that it will be in a landfill pretty soon if it's not something mm-hmm. that a company is going to stand behind. Yep. So typically there's a correlation between a better warranty and price, but that's something else that needs to be made more apparent to consumers, which is if you buy something that's more expensive but that lasts or that the company stands by and repairs, yep. Patagonia. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, as you were talking about warranty, I'm thinking about like all these – technology products that are sort of designed to be disposable. Exactly. Like you have a problem with one, they, they it's not worth repairing. You just throw it away and get a new one. And part of that, I mean, this could become a very existential conversation, but part of that goes into the um, environmental externalities, right? We don't right, price those right. things for what they are worth. Mm-hmm. If you think about so many years ago, um, particularly in Europe, I see uh, there's there's a durability uh, uh, that's associated with a lot of things. People pay a bit more for those things, but oftentimes they last longer. Yeah. But also think about our grandparents' generation. They repaired. They were very resourceful. It was just a, a different economic paradigm, a, diff- a different consumer mindset. And because we're not actually paying for either the cost of the environment of those right. things or what it costs them to not be durable, it's just too easy to throw them away. Mm-hmm. Um, so warranty is one of those proxies for sure. quality. Then the social and environmental, and of course, these are all material to a, a given product, right? So I'm speaking in uh, in broad terms, but if you're looking at a textile, then in a social pillar, you'd need to pay attention, obviously, to the labor. You uh, would want to make sure that those workers have good conditions. And if you're looking at, again, a textile product from an environmental perspective, what were those chemicals used? What about the water? Just thinking about the the overall materiality of a footprint of a given product, uh-huh. which is something else that it's hard for a consumer to know. But if one understands where those bigger pain points are holistically, then that's how the score needs to reflect these sure. to a consumer. Sure, and I would think part of it too is how far the product or the pieces that 
constitute the product have to travel exactly to, to the carbon emissions to get to of where the customer is shipment and yeah so th- in all likelihood the ultimate um, technology for something like this whether that's a Kogo or whether we're enlisting that somehow in a transparency metric is blockchain yeah. right? and okay. that's the most credible technology there that really begins to record all of these things there's a long way to go A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. So blockchain, um, this might be a bit of a digression, but it's not a topic we've interrogated here on the podcast. I just don't, I don't know quite how familiar with the concept our listeners are. Can you give us like the... 15 second, this is what blockchain is. It's that, I know that's a big lift. Um, well, I can speak to this in the context of, uh, of supply chains and supply okay, chain that's probably most appropriate. transparency, which is a um, recorded proof of where each of those inputs for a product comes. So you can think of it as a unbreakable code that yeah. validates each point of um, of production or each point of, um, of input of a, of a given product, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the probably easier applications that we're beginning to see is in the area of fisheries. So that's not necessarily a product that's made, but you can verify that, the, that it is not an illegal fish that's caught. Okay. So from the point that it is caught, it is verified with blockchain, its location and its type, so that um, one knows that it's not an endangered species. Equally, there's a, a really cool um, nonprofit actually out of the UK that's beginning to do more with this, provenance.org. Okay. And if you look at some of their products, she will actually be able to note the labor factory where a given good is made and you right. can trace it back to see that. So it's not an obscure factory somewhere. And the, the chain of, every step of the chain of custody gets recorded. Chain of custody, exactly. And if at any point somebody tries to sort of hack that, there's a record. Like you, you can't, it's you unhackable can't, in a exactly. way. Yeah. If, yeah. That's what we need to scale. So, and, yeah, and, geez. and in this context, that's that's the supply chain transparency component that um, that we need to really invest in. So say, well, gosh, I, I guess I have a ton of questions about this. So. And I'm not a blockchain expert, yeah, so no, I won't. Not necessarily <laughs> the blockchain, but I'm, I'm, you know, so we know what the, we, we sort of have a conception now of what the gold standard is for this scoring or label or, or however it ends up manifesting at the product level. How, how are you, where are you at now, and and how what's the plan to get to, toward that gold gold standard? So we have initially approached this from a direct to consumer perspective. Okay. For this, for the reasons that I I just mentioned, you know, it's. There's so many studies that indicate how needed this is in the world, particularly yeah. if we look at millennials and, and Gen Z and the, the quest for understanding the constitution of a product and, and being informed conscientious consumers. But the cost of acquisition for a, a consumer, the, um, the ability to get them to transition to that new yeah. technology, even if, you, if you're really interested, it's just another barrier to buying a loaf of bread at the grocery store and sometimes you just need to go and buy a loaf yeah, of bread yeah. <laughs> and not overthink every little thing. So that is, um, that's been one of our findings right now is that though there's an interest in it, there's a bit of a barrier to going direct to consumer. And so right now we're in the process of looking at what a 
um, a B2B model might look like. So going okay. upstream in a supply chain and helping a business see into that, which then translates down to the consumer. I mean, you wonder, like, if you could just get Amazon to adopt something. I mean, yeah, you're shaking your head like, yeah, that, um, that might be the holy grail of, of success for Ecogo. Yeah. Um, and that, like, that just raises a whole host of kind of interesting questions. You know, I remember as an MBA student, we would talk about sustainability. Walmart was like the boogeyman. Everybody hated Walmart for their labor practices, for their, you know, all the, the, the manufactured garbage that would end up in a landfill, whatever. But then they announced that they want to put a complex fluorescent light bulb in every house in America. And the impact of change on that scale would wipe out like the impact of so many nonprofits, so many individual, you know, decisions to do this or not do that. And yeah, so this is this interesting trade-off. Like what, what outcome are you really trying to affect here? And, you know, the, the, the notion of morality and partners, it kind of, yeah, it gets blurry. It gets blurry. Um, but the, the, the tipping effect that you've just described was my initial rationale for going into the private sector, which is if you can, be that effective advocate, make the business case, but also effectuate change internally. You, if you can turn that ship, that tanker ship, even yeah. if it's slow, once it's going in that direction, the impacts are are really profound. And as you say, that can mean more than you know a lot of small combined efforts. It's just a question of how you really find those triggers and how you actually get those really big companies to to turn in that direction. Yeah. So what's what's the timeline? You guys like next week gonna roll this thing out? We we are very very anxious. Um, yeah. t- obviously to to get this rolled out. I don't think it will be next week. Okay. Um, okay. But but you'll be the first to know. Oh, for real? <laughs> Maybe the wow. second. Inside tip there. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's pivot a little bit because like we've talked about challenges and problems on such a a, a, a tremendous scale that it's. I mean, it's, it's awesome that you're working on them and have worked on them, but also you're passionate about change at the local level, um, probably both within your, you know, your Montana community and Paradise Valley, but also this notion of nature-based solutions. I've read some of your writing on this and, and trying to think about businesses that can provide value for customers, but also create meaningful change within their communities. Can you talk about a little bit about your work in that space? Sure. And this has been one of the really nice things about coming back to Montana and coming back to a very local community. And as we were mentioning uh, earlier, it was something that I ultimately missed being overseas for for so long. There was a very international community that was convened around a lot of these global issues. Mm-hmm. But um, the ability to see how that actually plays out and to touch and feel those stakeholders is something that's missing. So you're working on really large policies with... Um, very influential stakeholders, but it's still hard. It's still very amorphous in that sense. So v- an incredibly important component of, of, of that puzzle. But what's nice now is to be involved, as you said, at a local level. So I've taken you know a couple years now to hopefully sit back and listen and try to figure out where this conversation is here, because I appreciate that it's it's in a different place where I've come from previously. And what seems to really be emerging is the regenerative agriculture, okay. carbon soil sequestration work. 
And uh, I've been fortunate to work with the Western Sustainability Exchange based out of Livingston. I joined their board not long ago. And incredible people in that, in, in that uh, community. And just beginning to see how we have that conversation, it's totally apolitical because it's practical. And farmers yeah. and ranchers are seeing the benefits of investing in regenerative agriculture, in rotational grazing practices, and equally, there are more and more markets for sequestering carbon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, can you talk about some of those practices? Like, mm-hmm. what is regenerative, regenerative agriculture, and whatnot? So, it means a lot of different things. Sure. But in the context of this program, it is specific to uh, ways of managing the land that allow for the grasslands to regenerate themselves mm-hmm. and to sequester carbon. So it requires a lot more space for cattle to range and a lot more uh, management of those grazing practices so that they're not staying in one place and desertifying the land, okay. but roaming as animals used to do more naturally before um, before they were domesticated and we were ranching. So the the farmers and ranchers that are doing that actually were very proactive in how they move the cattle around. Mm-hmm. And then there are more and more tests that come in and look to see uh, what was the baseline of the carbon before and after. There's a lot of debate around measuring carbon in soils, oh, yeah. and I'm by no means the, the one to weigh in on all of it. But to the best of our abilities and to the best of the science that exists, those are the practices we're beginning to use. And the more data we have, the better it all is because it's so specific to a particular region or area. And we're getting more and more traction because the ranchers see that adopting those practices means they have less water runoff. It means they spend Mm – there's just a holistic approach to the cattle. They're healthier. The land is healthier. The whole thing is better. And it's beginning to figure out how we scale that. And I – didn't realize, uh, admittedly, how much potential there is in sequestering carbon just from grasslands. Yeah. It's enormous. It's it's more than oceans. And can that be then a revenue stream for these ranchers and yes. farmers? They can they yes. can sort of bring that. I mean, a carbon market is sort of emerging. Mm-hmm. It could be more robust, but they they can monetize that. Yes, and that's what we're starting to do. Yeah. Actually, yeah. we have an, an energy partner. And um, we being the Western Sustainability Exchange, so ranchers are beginning to see that payout, which is uh, which is what we need to, to do more and more of. I mean, I do a little bit of work with, um, you know, we, we're doing some research work in the Chesapeake Bay with trying to get uh, farmers to adopt. Um, I don't want to say necessarily better, but more sustainable land management practices, mm-hmm. cover cropping, riparian buffers, and so forth, and. You know, farmers seem willing and interested, but everything's got a pencil for these folks. You know, oh, yeah. like, they're not going to take crops out of rotation if they can't monetize it in some way, and that's the reality that the business they're in. I mean, their, their margins, margins are, are thin. Their margins are so low, and it's such hard work. Yeah, and um, and I only know the half of it. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. but that's why I feel very strongly that they need to be compensated for this in a way. Be, that that rewards those best practices because it's so much harder to do what they're doing than um, than to just continue you know normal operating procedures. Yeah, we and know it's, it. It's interesting too because it's an identity that's also under threat. I mean, it's so easy for you know the people that live in the city and buy their food at Whole Foods and whatever to sort of you know be disparaging about big agriculture. 
farmers this, farmers that, and they they get blamed for a lot, but yet at the same time they're feeding all of us. Exactly. Right? There's there's deep nobility in that profession. So I completely agree. Like if if they're going to if they're gonna be not only asked to feed all of us, they better get rewarded for saving the planet as well. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's unrealistic and unfair to yeah. ask for that transition without them being compensated right. for it. And ultimately, you know, it sort of goes full circle back to Ecogo and, and how we inform consumers too, because you get what you pay for. And being able to understand the difference between a rancher that has adopted those practices versus sending cattle to a feedlot Right. Huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't disparage that either because most of them don't have – there are all kinds of systems in place that don't allow for a choice right, there. Right. Many would do, uh, would do a lot of things differently if they could. But we do have to see the, the cyclical effect and the, um, the costs or the benefits that, that, that incur when, when they adopt better practices. And we have to be willing to pay for it. Yeah, that's a big piece of it too. You know, maybe this this scoring mechanism will help with that because That's it will the hope. Ma- make that more transparent, and you'll know. Okay, this this product costs more, but here's what I'm paying for, and here's what I get from it. Precisely. Yeah. So another piece of your work involves this sort of dual benefit model: people or planet and people. Now, how do you can kind of conceptualize the, the social aspects here? The people. I mean, labor mm-hmm. practices is one thing, but like at the community level, yeah, making people's lives better. Exactly. And I think the labor practices probably doesn't apply as much in this local community yeah, context. Yeah. So when I think about the I mean, the housing issue, right? That's a that's a, right. a big one. That that touches every part of Montana, the West. Mm-hmm. Certainly I see it a lot in Livingston and Paradise Valley. The other social component of that is is planning and zoning, which relates to the housing. Like they're all they are all linked. Uh, how do we evolve with all of the development while maintaining the integrity of what makes Montana and the West and the rural mountain states unique. Uh And so that's the social component of what I see from a local context is this grappling with a very low average wage, people just trying to make a living and also the the realities of, uh, of these external market forces. And that also goes back to the value. How do we value land that isn't necessarily developed, which is the other component of the WSE program that I like so okay. much? It gets back to how do you give – most ranchers and farmers don't want to sell their land to a housing development. No. Um, but at a certain point, the economic models tip yeah. in that direction. Yeah. So what are the other models we can put in place that compensate that? And one other link is um, – this more pedantic approach called ecosystem services, but basically it gets back to this component of valuing nature. So in addition to just carbon sequestration, there are ranchers that have taken really um, proactive approaches in, in stewarding land in conjunction with their, with predators, with grizzly bears, with wolves, particularly in Paradise Valley Mm -hmm. as it, as it joins Yellowstone. And we have to be able to compensate them for this too, because they are helping to keep an ecosystem intact. Absolutely. So what are those models? And companies like Patagonia and many of the other ones that are intrinsically linked to the outdoor space understand that these could be really good offsets for them. 
So it tra- helps them to transition to climate targets. And in the meantime, they're helping to uh, really support those people working the land uh, that are, are adopting best practices. We got to get some people working on what we call these best practices. I mean, I've heard that term ecosystem services before. Mm-hmm. Nature-based solutions. Yeah. It, that's it, better. It's, but even it, sustainability. I mean, do you want a life that's sustainable? Do you want a marriage that's sustainable? I mean, it's funny. When I was younger, I would say, hell no, I want a life that's awesome. I want a marriage that's awesome. As you get older, you think, yeah, sustainability is pretty good too. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting term. It is. It could mean a lot of different things. And it probably is at this point weighted too much with innuendo. And oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're probably like everything else. Time, time to move on to, to other things. But yeah, the the durability of of everything that sustains us in some way or another. Once you figure out this 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 label idea, this scoring idea, we'll, we'll put you on the vocabulary. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so you can talk about. So you're working with that Western Energy Exchange, Western, Western Sustainability Exchange. Are, um, any other local businesses that you're kind of working on that you're particularly excited about? One of the things that the returning to Paradise Valley is, uh, has really brought to light for me are all of the, I'm, I call them local impact entrepreneurs, though they wouldn't okay. call themselves that, but sure. they're people that see a challenge, I'll call them environmental challenges, and they have ideas about how to fix those. And uh, and that's actually been a nice connection to the business school here, and we're beginning to think about how do you pair some of these local impact entrepreneurs? Yep as I've just designated them, with business school students too. So, um, and then vice versa. What do we need in the world? What do we need in Montana? What do we need in the Royal Mountain West? Or what do we need in Paradise Valley? And is there a business solution for that? Okay. And uh, Ground in Common has been a, a blog that I've just started over the course of the last year, probably for my own sake to begin to think through these issues as much as anything. Yeah. But one of the things that has fallen away from that, it's, at the end of the day, a lot of these do have probably business solutions. Maybe we determine that they're better off placed in a nonprofit context, but I actually think in many cases they do. And um, and how do we activate around that? How do we pair you know, great institutions like the University of Montana and the business school and the entrepreneurs that are in this state with the things that we really need mm-hmm. from a social and environmental context. And what is that pairing, if you will, both those that are on the front lines and see this, but by not, might not be na- natural entrepreneurs and vice versa. Do you have any examples of this impact entrepreneur that you're thinking of here? Yes. I, I feel like we got a ton of them here in Missoula, but you know, who, who's kind of shaking it up in your community? Well, there are a lot of them, but one that really sticks out, uh, Malou Anderson Ramirez, who is a female rancher in the Tom Minor Basin that, that skirts the um, that skirts Yellowstone National Park. And in addition to her ranching and um, and all of the really impressive practices that that she and her family have been fostering over many years, she's come up with a, a really interesting technology proposal that would allow. Uh, ranchers to detect any kind of um, health issues in cattle, but specifically differences in heart rates and oh, breathing so that you can detect a predator. Yeah. And that has a few different implications. One, if it's ultimately a carcass, they can find the carcass through GPS positioning, okay. which means they're compensated. 
or it means that they can intervene. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, a, a sophisticated range rider program. And um, and so that's that's just one example. Yeah. But I see so many people like that, and they are on the front lines of these issues. And particularly the Tom Minor Basin, this is a you know the, the the main corridor for wildlife into the park. And so ranching with predators, with grizzly bears, with wolves is crucial. And they've adopted so many practices for doing that that um, allow the cattle to. Uh, to remain intact and, and, and not disturb the, the wildlife at the same time. So th- her idea is really, really interesting. Yeah. And so uh, some of the business school students here are actually working with her on that, thanks to uh, the um, entrepreneurship program. Oh, so how do we scale more of those? That's, yeah. That, I think, is the goal. Well, there's lots more out, out there. And you know, I'm excited to kind of watch you work with them and make these We'll send us some ideas. We will. We will. <laughs> Um, Lara, this has been fantastic. I know we're putting you through a pretty busy schedule today and tomorrow. Thank you for coming mm-hmm. to the University of Montana, the College of Business, and sharing your wisdom and experience. Uh, students love it. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's really my pleasure. So if people want to learn more about you and your work online, how, how can they find you? You mentioned your blog before. You want to give a call out to the to the URL? Sure, groundincommon.com. That's mm-hmm. probably the best place and probably the most applicable to the Royal Mountain West. All right. Lara Burks, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, hope you enjoyed that one. Check out more of Lara's work at groundincommon.com. All right, coming up next week, we have number eight in the Sea Change series. It's an interview with the amazing Nicole Heyer. Nicole is homeless education liaison for Kalispell Schools. Learn all about her important work next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.